So we've been looking at Acts chapter 2, and by the way, this is the gospel of discipleship, which is, you know, this, this is what's put forth. Um, there is no other gospel. There is no other complex of events. There is no attenuated gospel. Um, that would be the result of human thinking and human constructs. The Bible is consistent of four things, death, resurrection, ascension, exaltation. Those are all together. They are all of a piece. And Peter goes there and he starts addressing, finally addressing this crowd that's come because of Pentecost and the crowd kind of milling around and wondering, well, what is Pentecost about? People have different attitudes, different perspectives, and Peter's just trying to bring everything to a, a, a clarity about what this day of Pentecost, this coming of the Holy Spirit is all about. So his final passage that he sort of circles around is Psalm 110. And he approaches Psalm 110 first by declaring the realities that underlie or the, the expression of Psalm 110. And so that's what we're really looking at right now is, first of all, this declaration of Peter before he goes to the psalm uh, and makes a final assessment of things. Uh, he just declares some things. This Jesus God raised up again, Acts 2, 32 through 33. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Again, a bold declaration of a historic fact. God raised up Jesus. Uh, <clears throat> no force could accomplish this but God and no force of darkness can undo it. And that's just amazing. And Peter appeals to eyewitness testimony. We are all witnesses. We gathering up all the people that were there that had seen Jesus rise, risen from the dead and had even seen his ascension. When we went through the Bible, there's 544 plus individuals who saw the resurrection of Christ and some of those, even many of those, saw his ascension. And they're all witnesses and not one of them has ever retracted their testimony, not one. And Peter then goes on to say, therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured forth what you now both see and hear. Peter concludes that his uh, explanation of the significance of Pentecost, he's saying here's what it's all about. Therefore, he has poured forth this which you now see and hear. And he has two things that he puts in between the therefore and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Two things that Jesus has accomplished, which we have to understand to appreciate what Pentecost is all about. If we're, probably, if we're properly going to interpret the day of Pentecost, if we're properly going to appreciate the day of Pentecost, we have to understand two things about Jesus, two conditions that he fulfills. First of all, he is now in an exalted place of honor and responsibility. He has been exalted to the right hand of God. That's the first basis of the day of Pentecost. Now, when I was in Pentecostalism, which I was for years, um, in the charismatic movement, everybody wanted to talk about the Holy Spirit, which is fine, but you would never hear them mention any of this. This was not the foundation for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was for them just, I don't know, for many a plaything. It was kind of sad. Um, I, I wasn't caught up in it myself, but that was the the world in which I was, and I would watch it and hear it, and I just thought, oh, well, I, maybe I'm just off base, and uh, probably was in many things, but <clears throat> this is what we have to understand. Here's the day of Pentecost. Jesus is exalted at the right hand of God. He's now in a place of honor and responsibility and authority and power. And Jesus is also charged with distributing the Holy Spirit. 
Because Jesus is at the right hand of God, he gives the Holy Spirit. You get the Holy Spirit from Jesus. Um, folks who say, again, who say they're spiritual, but don't want to talk about Jesus, that's not spirituality. That's something else. So here are these two things, two facts, two conditions that underlie the events of Pentecost. Exalted to the right hand of God, and he's received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He's gone up into heaven, God has said, here's the Holy Spirit, now start giving it. And he's been doing it for the last 2,000 years. So having been exalted, we looked at that a bit. Be exalted is to be raised up. Having been, he's there and he will forever be there. Jesus died, Jesus rose, Jesus ascended, and Jesus was exalted. The final stage of his glorification. The sufferings of the Christ and the glories that should follow as Peter styles it. This is the great gospel fact. Just as much as he's been raised up, he is also at the right hand of God, exalted. And he's at the right hand of God. He's, this is a specific definition. He just didn't get raised up. He went to the right hand of God. That's where he's exalted. It's a place of highest dignity and honor, and it's direct reference to Psalm 110, where right hand of God is used twice. So we <clears throat> want to continue our consideration of the significance of the entire phrase, therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God. We want to see what it means, and we're going to an- continue to answer the question, is this having been exalted to the right hand of God, is this central, or is this peripheral to Christianity? Is this something that you know, we need to understand and know? Is it as much a part of the gospel as the death of Christ, or... Is it really just sort of a secondary thing? And some may say, well, who would think like that? And I'm like, well, there was a whole movement. It's died out. I'm probably still around in, in, in various places, little pockets of it. It used to say you can have Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. Kind of hard to do if the whole point is Jesus at the right hand of God. <clears throat> so anyway, we've been continuing with that. So this morning we'll, uh, we'll just look at that. Heavenly Father, we come to your throne of grace, and uh, Lord, it's a throne where Jesus is at your right hand. That's a reality, and uh, Lord, this morning, um, we can read your word, I can present your word, I can try to elucidate your word, or try to apply your word, but Lord Jesus, you can only give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation. You're the only one who can do that. And uh, Lord, we want to have a vision of this, as Chris prayed earlier, just a vision of Jesus at your right hand. That that would always be in our minds and hearts, that would always thrill us. And Lord, whether that vision is there because with personal power you're showing it to us, or whether that vision is there because of the residual of you having done that, or even if it's a distant memory, like some of the psalmists, I I remember the days of old. Um, Lord, whatever it is, just place it there, put it there, uh, let the pilot light of it never go out in our lives that Jesus is king, that Jesus reigns, that coming to Jesus Christ isn't coming to half a Christ, it's coming to a whole Christ. We come to be saved by a Jesus who is at your right hand. And uh, Lord, just uh, pray that that reality of that will grip us every day, will encourage us as individuals in the decisions we make, the priorities we establish. Lord, it will encourage us as a body, as Chris again mentioned, we're a small body of believers, but that's okay. You wrote seven letters to seven churches and Several of them were very small, very small. And uh, yet you consider them your church as part of your lampstand. And uh, Lord, we would never forget that. We would not look at numbers so much as we just, just look at, are we serving you? 
Uh, are we glorying in you? Are we doing what we're supposed to do? Um, and so, Lord, just, just give us a sense of that and give us a sense that we live in the power of your death and your resurrection and your ascension and your glorification at God's right hand. That's the power that's behind us. That's the power when we pray. That's the power when we witness. That's the power when we come before you and seek to have strongholds of, I don't know, still pockets of things in our lives uh, that need to be addressed. Um, Lord, that's what we come with. And Lord, this morning, send your Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, you, you receive the Holy Spirit from the Father. You're the one who pours him out. You're the one who distributes him. And just pray you would distribute him in each of our hearts and minds this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, just sort of get a running start. I always sort of want to catch up from last week. Some people haven't been here. And also just to get the juices flowing. Summary. Sometimes I feel like my summaries are clearer than my original presentation. So you all can be the assessment of that for yourselves. But that's how I feel sometimes. But we look at Acts chapter 5 again. What is the significance of Jesus at the being at the right hand of God? And here is Peter. He's, he's bringing the gospel again to people. And here's this little pocket summation of it. And he says, God exalted him in his right hand as a leader and a savior. Prince and a savior. And he says, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus. This is something that's in the Old Testament. This is something that's in continuity with God's purpose of redemption from the beginning of Genesis 3.15. This isn't some secondary or, you know, plan B because plan A didn't work. This is from the beginning. Here's this core outline of the gospel. And in it, you could trace all the elements of that back to some place in the Old Testament in significant prophecy. But this is part of gospel preaching, especially to those who had the history of it, who knew about it, who read the scriptures of it, but were misinterpreting those scriptures. And here's a correction that Peter is making. Stephen, he's being stoned. He's in the process of dying, okay? This is a dead man's testimony here in Acts 7, 55 through 56. He's full of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting that when you read about Stephen in Acts 6, 5, it says he was full of faith in the Holy Spirit. And 6, 6 says he was full of grace and power. Um, any of you all want that? Because those, those are, those are treasure, treasure things to have, um, Pray for that. Say, Lord, I want to be like Stephen. Uh, maybe I don't want to get stoned, but I do want to have his faith. And Stephen was always disputing with the Jews. Some people think that you know, any kind of evangelism you ever do is just, you're just going to be nice, and it's your niceness that's going to approve you to people. And it's like, no. Sometimes, like in this case, you end up disputing with people because there are people who oppose the gospel. You go downtown, and who will you meet? You'll meet the black Israelites, right? You'll meet other people down there. You'll meet the Jehovah's Witnesses. And when you deal with them, you're going to have to dispute with them, and people are going to be watching, and it's not a wrong thing. Just remember that. That's not what we always want to be doing, but you will end up, if you're presenting the gospel, that's where you will end up. You will end up in dis disputes, particularly if you're someone like Stephen who had the truth and the Holy Spirit was with him. Uh, you're going to have people, the Holy Spirit will bring out opposition from the woodwork. He was disputing with the Jews, and here he is at the end of his message. It was the final time he got to talk to them, and they were so outraged, they were so done with Stephen, they're stoning him to death. And this dying statement il illustrates two aspects of the exaltation of Jesus, and it's why I, 
I look at it again, we need to be reminded that Jesus is in heaven. His exaltation means he's physically in heaven. He is in a physical location. Stephen gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God. He said, I see the heavens open. So this is a, a heavenly sight, a heavenly viewpoint. It's a physical location. It's beyond the cosmic horizon. And there's the DNA of Jesus there. There's a new humanity in heaven. There's a true humanity in heaven. And that is our hope. If you haven't done a study on Christ as the last Adam, you should do so. Because it's very central to the gospel. And it will demonstrate that uh, there's a new humanity in heaven and we're a part of it. That is our future. That is our hope. That is everything. If you're here this morning and you're in Christ, that's your identity. You're not in old Adam. You're in new. And that new Adam, the head of that new human race, is in heaven right now in a physical place. And though it's a physical place, it's also a sphere of God's direct presence and glory. It transcends the merely physical, but it's a place. Stephen saw. And the other thing that that we see from Stephen, he says it twice. Here's a dying man's words, and he he wants to leave us with this statement twice, true Hebrew parallelism. I'm going to tell it to you twice. Jesus is at the right hand of God in heaven, and it's in fulfillment of a myriad of promises and prophecies. He's in a place of authority, power, and dominion, and this is the biblical Jesus. So the question you have to sort of consider is, um, is this your Jesus? Is the Christ who's at the right hand of God with all authority, power, and honor, is that your Jesus? Is that the Jesus you worship? Is that the Jesus you want to save you? Now in his power, glory, and honor, he has uh, you know, oodles of love and he's, win- he's gone through things in his life and he's gone through every trial to the end. Unlike us, we often get halfway through and kind of pooter out. Sometimes three quarters, sometimes 90%, but most time we end up not making it to the end of our trial. Jesus made it to the end every time. He knows what it is to make it to the end, to endure to the end. And so he can go, yep, Steve, I I know what it's like to have to endure. And he'll come, and that's what Hebrews chapter 4 and 5 is talking about, is we have a high priest who can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And we're going to get into that, Romans chapter 8 and Hebrews chapter 4 and 5. The priesthood of Christ is for his intercession. But this reality first must be established that it is central to the gospel. Jesus standing at the right hand of God, Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This is the biblical Jesus. We looked last week also at Ephesians, Paul praying, and he's got this long prayer from chapter 115 to 3 to the well, end of chapter 3, 321. Uh, very long prayer. I won't say it's the longest in the Bible because Solomon had a long-winded prayer. Um, all good stuff. But Paul is praying through all these things, and he says, I'm praying. One of my first things I want you to know, one of the foundational, the beginning of things, is that you'll have spiritual enlightenment. The Holy Spirit will come and give you true knowledge and understanding and an experience of the full scope of the gospel. The eyes of your heart would be enlightened. True knowledge, understanding, experience of the power of the gospel, his power toward us to believe. This is food for faith. This is the foundation for daily living, and it's fuel for serving the Lord. This is what you need. You know, if you're just sort of left on your own and you're milling around going, gosh, life's boring, and you know, you're going to get into things that you shouldn't be in. It's just going to happen. 
And so you make sure that you're always before the Lord saying, Lord, fill me with this, this enlightenment that Paul prays for everybody to have. Power to us who believe. And this power was and is expressed and is operative in what God has done in Christ. It's power that's operative when he raised him from the dead. It's power that's operative when he set him in his right hand in the heavenly places. And notice that. He's at the right hand and he's in heaven. Those are the two conditions. Those are the things um, or the, the two aspects, I'm sorry, of the one condition. And Paul goes on to elaborate its extent and duration, but these are the things that are important. We saw in Ephesians, Paul later takes what he said. He said, here's the great realities of the gospel, and God made us alive together in Christ. You were dead, but God made us alive. By grace, you're saved. We're to identify with and experience this newness of life in Christ. People get all distressed about Romans 6, especially Romans 7. It's like the whole thing's about new life in Christ. You see, before you had new life in Christ, did you struggle with sin? Now, you might have had a guilty conscience and you might have had some consequences, but did you personally struggle? Oh, I'm just such a dirt pole. The only reason you would have had that struggle is if the Lord was working in your life, tried to bring you to himself. Just had a testimony of, well, Jerry, he'll tell you about that if you talk to him. Now, the last few months before he got saved recently, just he was trying to be as good as he could. He was going to prove that he was good, and all, all he saw was rottenness in his heart. Isn't that great when the Lord shows you who you really are? But once we're saved, once we're in Christ, we've been alive in Christ. And Romans 7 is really addressing that. When you're alive in Christ, now sin is a problem. It didn't used to be a problem. Now it's a problem, and it, there's these internal struggles that you go through, and Paul tries to articulate those. I have not understood at all the last 10, 20 years where people have tried to say it's something else. I'm like, how can it be something else? Paul tells you at the very end of the chapter, you know, this is what Christians go through. It's because you're alive. It's not because you're a bad person and not saved. That's usually our first conclusion. Oh, there's rottenness in my heart. I must be unsaved, right? Isn't that what first happens? Isn't it what continues to happen? Happens with me. I could do a message on Romans 7 and say all the glories of it and everything else, make it all precise and all laid out because it's really pretty easy to do. And the next day I'd be going, I must not be a Christian because my heart is so rotten, so full of pride, so full of this, so full of that. So it's, that's the struggle, and we're always going to have it until the day of the Lord because we yearn to be holy, and the, the closer we get to God, the more we see what holiness is and the more we see what falls short, we fall short of it. And we tend to think, well, if I'm falling this short, how can I be a Christian? Well, you've been made alive together with Christ. There's newness of life, and out of that you live. And we've been raised up with him. His resurrection and the power of it comes into our lives. We should identify with and experience the power of his resurrection. And we've been seated with him in the heavenly places. It's the, the glory of his exaltation. Somehow, some way, we are there. We are part of it. And again, as I said last week, I'm not sure what that means. But I do know it means something great. <clears throat> um, so when you're praying, just remember where you are. Okay, you're not, uh, when you go get down to pray, I don't know what your experience is, but if I get down to get serious with prayer with God, the first thing I have in my brain is just a bunch of confusion. If it's the busyness of the day or this or that, things I wasn't thinking about at all until I got down to pray, and all of a sudden, 50 things come on my head. And it just happens, and you have to pray your way through those things. And you have to be saying, you know, to principalities and powers, you don't have to speak to them if you don't want to, but you can just declare. Sometimes I just do it out loud. 
I am in Christ. I am raised with him, and I'm seated with him in heavenly places. And I have authority to pray before the throne of God. I'm a priest and and a king, as it were. A royal priesthood. That's what we're part of. We're raised with Christ. All right, well, today we want to deal with another passage. Gone through Ephesians. I'm going to deal with now with Philippians. And I wanted to just get to the passage itself, which really starts in verse 9 about the glorification of Christ, but it doesn't make a lot of sense without what goes before. As I've tried to say about Philippians, is that if you want to know the structure of the church, go to Ephesians. If you want to know the heart of of Christianity, go to Philippians. They blend together, but they give you two aspects of the things. In Philippians chapter 2 is particularly 1 through 4, Paul gives one of the most moving exhortations to love, fellowship, and unity that I can imagine. I mean, there's other places that talk about it. But just you read those, those first uh, verses in chapter, chapter 2. If there's therefore any exhortation in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any tender mercies and compassions. It's like a beautiful, a beautiful sonata on a violin, any of those things. That's fellowship in the Lord. So Paul gives this moving exhortation to love, fellowship, and unity. And then Paul does, true to new covenant ethics, Paul doesn't ground this in Moses. He grounds this in Christ. That's what New Covenant theology is all about. We go to Jesus for law. We go to Jesus for commandment. We go to Jesus for motivation to be holy before God. And Paul grounds this humility and this unity in the example of Christ. And that's what we see here. New Covenant ethics, if you will. Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves which is in Christ Jesus. Here's this exhortation to love and compassion and fellowship, but it can't happen if there's pride, arrogance, self-will, personal pursuits of personal gain or personal benefit. I mean, that's just not going to happen. You all know in your lives, all you have to do is just be married for a week, and what do you find out? Uh Uh-oh, you know. Being selfish isn't going to work, isn't going to make this happen. The biggest challenge to newly marrieds is figuring out what marriage actually was about because each came with their own ideas of it, right? And the problems in in newly married folks, and, and as it continues, is what? You don't give up your original ideas. Somehow you're going to hold on to those ideas and make them work. Well, they won't. They won't work. When you get married, figure it out. You've got to lose everything and give up everything and rebuild your concept of marriage from the Word of God and from the experience that you have. And then you'll have a good and a peaceful relationship. It's not, it's, it's not that, what would you say, complex. It's just simply stinking hard. Why? Because you've got to give up everything. You're now joined to another person. You're one flesh. And that should be your definition of marriage. Happens with, I don't know, all relationships. Happens in the church. 
We can't be a body of believers if we're pursuing our own way. When I would be at other churches for a long time, I often said to Gwen, I don't know where I'd go to church if there wasn't for New Covenant. Um, but for a long time, just trying to hunt for a church where I could just be, and as a Bible teacher, that would give me problems. The average person wouldn't have a problem, but I'm a Bible teacher, and sooner or later, guess what's going to come out the mouth? Something's going to come out that people aren't going to be happy with. It's just going to happen because my job is to teach the Bible and I'm not going to compromise. I can't. Um, it's just not in me. It's not in me to compromise. I can try to bite my lip for a while, but once I've bitten the lip off, then there's nothing else to stop me. Um, you only get so much lip to bite before it just happens. So it was, it was, it was a challenge. But in these churches, I would find that the average Christian who was, you know, really walking with God, someone who, you know, was serious about Christianity, they were very often out in their own ministries. I often used to tell Gwen, one of the tracks I want to write, or if I was ever going to write a book, now it's if I'm ever going to do YouTube, um, <clears throat> I'd want it to be, uh, my ministry would be the title, the title of it. Because everybody would talk about their ministry, their clown ministry, their this. And it's not that they weren't doing good, but it was their ministry. And there was not a sense of the body. Because the leadership of the churches were not building that and welding that. And so if anybody was going to you know, be successful in the Lord the way they would feel, they'd have to go off and do their own thing. Because it just wasn't going to happen where they were at. So we can't be that. We can't be the church of everyone going out doing our own thing. Someone doing this, someone doing that. To be a successful body of Christ, we have, a base, have to have a basic core unity. And it's my job, Chris's job, and anybody else who you know, comes into leadership, it's our job to enable you to not have to talk, you know, deal with your ministry. It's our job to enable you as part of the body to express what God is doing here. You shouldn't have to be out hunting down your own ministry. It should be just working out with a body behind you and prayer behind you and people supporting you. Quinn was mentioning this morning how when we uh, did our first Bible study, most of you know about the Bible study, though those that you don't for five or six years at, at our house, there was a revival, a real one, and at one point there was 100, 110 people showing up, and they were all college students, which was very wonderful and exciting and frustrating and hard, okay? And we just often say, gosh, what if we could do it now? Which I'm hoping for. Um, think of all the support there would be for something like that. Um, a whole church to be part of it, a whole church to be praying, a whole church, some showing up one week, others showing up another week, some bringing the snacks instead of asking the poor college kids to do it, who did it as college students will. <clears throat> For them, bringing something to eat is a bottle of Pepsi, um, which is fine. That was who I was, too. That's all you would have gotten out of me. Um, and so we, there's this whole church. It doesn't have to be my ministry. It doesn't have to be an individual doing their own thing. So here it is, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Have this humility. Have this fellowship. Have this unity. Have this each counting the other better than himself. Have this, because this was what Jesus did. New covenant ethics. The attitude was humility. 
Paul's going to present the exaltation of Christ, but it is based on his humiliation. Jesus didn't arrive at exaltation simply because he showed up and said, hey, I'm God, therefore I'll be exalted. That isn't how it went. He humbled himself. And Paul is going to step by step show and elaborate the details of how Jesus humbled himself. The self-humiliation of Christ is an incredible process worthy of explicit examination and Paul takes us through the steps. And I'm reminded again of an old Puritan, Thomas Manton, who I was just sort of reading a few pages of, it, of his little commentary one day and he just commented on Philippians and I've said it a hundred times so many of you may remember it. Can man be proud after God has been humble? That's the takeaway. That's new covenant ethics. Can man be proud after God has been humble? So here are the steps of his humiliation. First of all, Jesus was and is the divine son of God. He existed in the form of God. Now people get all tedious, want to argue against it. You know, those who want to deny the eternal sonship of Christ get all picky about this, but it's just, it's just, I don't know. It's not only frustrating, it's just absurd to watch them try to challenge these verses and make them say something different than what they do. He existed in the form of God. That's what he was. It's the the form. He is the Son of God. He has all the characteristics of God. He is, the best statement, is God the Son. If you want to be clear, because, you know, I remember when the Years ago, the Jehovah's Witnesses would say that Jesus wasn't the Son of God because by what we mean by Son of God, we mean the Eternal Son. So they say, oh no, he's not Son of God. Well, then they got wise and realized they had to be more sophisticated. So now they'll say, we believe Jesus is the Son of God, but then they just redefine it. And so in order to be clear, in order to be clear for ourselves, be clear for everybody, clear to the Jehovah's Witnesses and all the other ancient Aryan heresies floating around out there, We have to call him God the Son. Jesus is God the Son. Jesus of Nazareth, at one point in his existence, was in the form of God. He was God the Son. But in that state, he did not regard being on the equality with God a thing to be grasped or that is held on to, but he emptied himself. I've always found it interesting that some of the cheapest people that Gwen would encounter in her clowning days were the rich people. They were the ones that were chintzy. They were the ones that would argue over whether she was there for that much time or not. I mean, they'd argue over 10 bucks. They were in love with money. That's why they were rich. That's what they were holding on to with all they could do. Being rich was a thing to be grasped to be held on to. Well, Jesus, God the Son, the eternal Son of the Father, did not regard this equality with God. He's equal with God. He's as much God as God is God. A thing to be held on to, but he emptied himself. Now, he didn't empty himself of his deity. That's very clear. 
But he emptied himself of the immediate glory and honor and privilege that he experienced in his eternal state. Now you may remember that in John 17, in the prayer of Jesus, he said, Father, you know, I want to go be with you and have the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. He had glory with the Father before the foundation of the world. When he came to earth where his personal presence was, even though he had fellowship with the God the Father, and the opening of John says that he is in heaven, he's in the bosom of the Father, he had fellowship, but he was not in that place of privilege and experience and honor and glory that he had before he came. Now, I don't know what to say about that. Maybe someone will tell me I'm some heretic or something. That's how you become heresy when you try to deal with or explicitly state things that the Bible talks about. But there's this recognition that Jesus emptied himself of something. Doesn't have to put too fine a point on describing it. But it's not as deity. It's all the blessing and honor and privilege that came with that. He was in the presence of the angels. He was with the Father. And he emptied himself. Is that what you do in your life? Do you seek for honor and glory? Do you seek for privilege? Or are you willing to empty yourself? Every relationship requires that. Especially your relationship with God. Now I know there's hardly any of you here that ever have to deal with pride and arrogance. I know that. But for those of us that do... When you're in your little mode of pride and arrogance, how much fellowship do you get with God? Unless, of course, he's trying to fix you. (laughs) Doesn't go well with God, does it? It's like Jesus said, come and learn of me because I'm meek and lowly in heart and that's who God is. Jesus, the eternal son, was ready and willing to empty himself. Are you? Am I? This is vital to a church body because body life is based on relationships that always require this quality. A body will not work if we're not willing to think more highly of others than ourselves. Give way to others and honor preferring one another. We'll get to it when we get to Romans about body life, chapter 12. If we've got to have importance, if we've got to have the final say, if these kind of things won't work. We have to be ready to empty ourselves. Didn't, require, didn't regard, he put aside his glory and privilege. Didn't grasp it. And he took the form of a bondservant. Not just a servant, not just paid help. A bondservant was not paid. A bondservant got room and board and only enough room and board to enable him to be a bondservant. More than a lot of of extras. There wasn't a retirement plan. You worked until you died. Taking the form of a bondservant. 
He was in the form of God. He did not consider that something to be held on to for dear life. He emptied himself and he took the form of a bondservant. That's God. Again, are you willing to take that place? Are you willing to humble yourself? And he was made in the likeness of men. He took on our humanity. He was like us. He became similar to us. Jesus emptied himself of privilege and took on something he never had before, true humanity. He did not take on being a bondservant in the form of an angel. Angels are ministering spirits. But he didn't take on the form of angels. Book of Hebrews is all about that. But he took on the form of a human being. And Paul, in seeking to explain and impact his, his readers with becoming humble, let humility be something that's good, not something you struggle against. Let it be a good thing. Embrace it from the heart. It says, look at who God is. Look at who Jesus is. And he became one of us. He became fully human. You might remember in 1 Timothy 3, great is the mystery of godliness, he who was manifested in the flesh. First thing that's said, the incarnation of the Son of God, made in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, and this word here is a little bit different than being in the likeness of men. It's the schema and it's the, sort of the outward appearance of a man. So he had a true human body. He was, if you looked at him, if you had a lineup and said, pick out Jesus, if you hadn't seen him before, you'd probably know, well, I don't know. I don't know who to look at. You maybe would pick the handsomest person or the person you know, with the greatest build. I don't know. I don't know what they would do back in those days. But you really couldn't pick him out in a lineup because he looked just like everybody else. He was a real human being, and except for sin, he was as human as every one of us is. Paul wants to reinforce this reality of the comprehensive humanity of Jesus. This was the context of his humiliation. The context was becoming a human being. And again, if you want the thrill of what that means and the power of what that means, just start studying Jesus as the last Adam. And all the terminology in the Bible, old man, new man. Unfortunately, in the newer translations, that old man, new man terminology has been, I don't know, I don't know, interpreted away. They call it the old self. Well, in the original, it's old man, not old self. I guess they're trying to uh, make it gender neutral. And in doing so, they lost the power of the doctrine of Christ as the last Adam. So get an older edition. ASV or something like that. But being found in the appearance of a man, it's a context of humiliation, but that's not the final step. As a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. His final step is he took on our sin and our guilt. That's his final step. Jesus died as a despised criminal. The world was jeering him. The world was deriding him. 
Everybody who saw him didn't know about the kangaroo court. They just assumed he was guilty. I mean, I would, wouldn't you? If you're walking by a criminal and, gosh, he's going to go to the electric chair, you feel like you figure, well, there was a judicial process that got him there, and he's probably guilty, most likely. So he had the whole world thinking that he was a wretched sinner. He had done such horrible things that they put him on a Roman cross. There is nothing positive about a Roman cross. In its day, it was the ultimate torture stake. You couldn't be more torturous than a cross. If you want to really inflict pain and agony, you put someone on a cross. And you get testimonies of that from all kinds of different places uh, around the world and, and cultures that talk about it. It's the ultimate torture and it's the ultimate humiliation. I mean, you're strung up and everybody's looking. And you're not there for any other reason than you've been found guilty of something so awful that you should be tortured to death. And so Jesus demonstrated to God his obedience. He demonstrated to himself his obedience. He demonstrated to everything and everyone in the created universe his obedience. He was obedient to the point of death. He humbled himself, and part of that humility is being obedient to what you're called upon to do. Just do it. Do it with faith, do it without complaint. Even if it's hard, even if it's so hard when you're praying to God about it, you're sweating great drops of blood. Have any of you had a prayer experience like that? Well, Jesus did. That's what, it's obedience. If anybody knows obedience, Jesus does. If anybody knows facing a trial and a hardship that is just repulsive, Jesus knows. He can side with you in anything and everything you go through. Here's the nature of true obedience. Even to death, the death of a cross. Then Paul goes on to say it was on this basis, not his essential deity. Jesus was not exalted to the right hand of God because he was God. I mean, you'd think that would be reason enough, but Jesus did not go there as the eternal son so much as he went there as the God-man, as the last Adam as the second man, the head of a new humanity. And so it was as the head of a new humanity, it was as that second Adam, undoing and what the first Adam did and, and redoing what Adam, the first Adam should have done. He was obedient unto the death of the cross and therefore God highly exalted him. It was the result of Christ's humiliation and obedience as the God-man that he is exalted to the right hand of God. See, a man had to go to heaven for us to be saved. DNA had to go to heaven for us to be saved. That must be core to your understanding of things. What God was doing in Christ to bring him into heaven as the head of a new humanity, the firstborn of the new creation. That's why he's the captain of our salvation. That's why. And because he's there, you are there. And that's what Paul is pointing out. Because he's there, you will one day enjoy what he has purchased what he has assured by going there. 
Because Jesus could not be raised from the dead unless everybody whose sins he represented, all those sins were paid for. Your sins are paid for. How do you know? Because Jesus is at the right hand of God. So going around and moping about your sins, that is not going to pay for your sins. Jesus already paid for them at Calvary. Only blood on a cross is going to pay for sins. You can't do that. You can't go back and do it. You can't do it today. Because Jesus was obedient unto death, because he humbled himself unto the cross, the death of the cross, as a human being, as the last Adam. For this reason, God exalted him. Meekness and humility are the core characteristics of God. And that is why God is at peace with himself. He's totally at peace. Why? Because he's meek and he's humble. Like I said, last week or two, just one of those things that came out of my mouth, I thought, ah, maybe there's something to that. The only time God has been bombastic was at creation because he only had six days to make a whole universe. So he kind of had to make things loud and everything else. But after that, meek and lowly of heart. God at peace with himself. And we enter into that peace because we enter into that meekness and humility of God himself. Because Jesus humbled himself unto death, God highly exalted him. Because Jesus was representing all of the humanity that he's going to bring to glory, God highly exalted him. If you're in Christ this morning, then you're part of that. That is your, that's what you get, some of us sooner than others. 72 years old, I'm already two years past my 70 years given in Psalm 90. Every year is an extra credit. I'm going to heaven, not because I feel holy this week or last or next week, but because there's a man in heaven who paid for my sins. He is highly exalted. And God bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Just as Paul was detailed in the steps of Christ's humiliation, he's also detailed in the aspects of Christ's glorification. God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Now a name represents your identity. You don't want to lose your good name. If you tarnish your good name, it's really hard to get it back. One of the things you learn when you have a store or a small business is it only takes one person to come in and give you a bad review to ruin all the good ones. It's hard to keep a good name and it's easy to lose it. But Jesus, because he obeyed the Father in everything, because he did what no one else would or could do, he was given a name that's above every name. Now, he's already the eternal son. So what is this name all about? Well, you read about it in Psalm 2. I will tell the decree the Lord has said unto me, you are my son, this day have I begotten you. That's a name. You read about it in, uh, we've been looking at 2 Samuel 7. I will be his father and he will be my son. You say, Stephen, where do you get that? I get it right out of the Hebrews chapter 1, by the way, which we'll be going over. 
Hebrews chapter 1 quotes those two places and says that's his name that he got because he was obedient unto death. So there's all this Old Testament imagery, there's all this Old Testament prophecy and promise and statement and type and shadow behind the name of Jesus that God has bestowed on him. It's a name above every name. There is no name greater. There is no name beyond his. God has given his son, his exalted son, the highest name possible. No other name above that. So that, well, Hebrews 1 elaborates it. We'll be looking at that. But the book of Revelation, that's why I love the book of Revelation. A picture is worth a thousand words and an apocalyptic image is worth about a million or more. And that book is peculiar to many of you. It's, it's a different book, that's for sure. But once you get in stride with what that apocalyptic imagery means and what it conveys, that apocalyptic imagery is kind of like, a, what are those, QR codes? You look at the QR code and you go, I don't know what's in it, but you scan it, all this information's there, right? Well, those images in the book of Revelation are God's QR codes, and once he gives you spiritual insight and understanding to it, then it just got all this information, all this perspective. In the book of Revelation, and it has gripping apocalyptic imagery that captures the essence of Christ's exaltation and glory, and there's no other book like it. That's why to understand that book and to understand it correctly is vital to your faith. Not to debate it, but to appreciate it, to have God speak to you from it. Have God fill your soul from it. When God opens up his apocalyptic imagery in that book, and he opens it up to you, and he fills you with his Holy Spirit, and usually it's done piecemeal. First thing you gotta do is go, okay, the content of the book. So that takes some reading, and that's perplexing, all right? But you spend a year or two reading the book here and there, read it three or four times eventually, and you start going, oh, okay, I've got the content. And someone has to explain to you, or you have to figure it out, how the structure goes. And once you get that down, you go, oh, okay, now I'm starting to see, and there's rhyme and reason to this book. And then you have to recognize that in that book, there's Old Testament prophecy. Sixty or more percent of the book is nothing but Old Testament prophecy and quotations. Quotes and allusions, so clear, you know, just obvious allusions. And you start realizing, okay, the book of Revelation is reaching back all the way to Genesis. And it's bringing everything, all of the entirety of redemptive history forward into this apocalyptic biblical theology. The history of redemption filled through and through. It is one amazing book. I would dare to say once you're in a place where you understand it, it's the most powerful book in the Bible. It will take you places with the Lord that no other book can. It's a blessed book. It's a powerful book. That's why I, someone says, well, Steve, why are you so intent on some things about eschatology? It's because that book is powerful, and if you get off on your eschatology, you're going to miss it. And I don't want you to miss it. I want you to see it. Book of Revelation is a first century video, by the way. I'm starting to get into doing videos or trying. We'll see how good I do. It was a first century video. That's what apocalyptic imagery is. It's a video. That's why it's so at times bizarre or vivid or whatever because they're trying to paint pictures and capture the essence of things that only those pictures can capture. 
The imagery brings more clarity to the mind and reaches more deeply into the soul than just about any other place in the Bible. That's my advertisement for the book of Revelation. But in there, what do you see? How does the book start? Well, we're going to look at it. It starts with a vision of Christ in the heavens, in the golden lampstands, trimming the wicks, doing what the high priest was supposed to do. And lo and behold, those lampstands are real churches in the first century. It's a powerful book. What's the next vision you see? Chapter 5, you see the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God being exalted to the throne of God. What do you see in chapter 12? You see here is this man-child, the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15. And he is there and Satan, the dragon, is trying to destroy the man-child. He's caught up into heaven. And And the book continues. And when that final day is coming and Jesus is there bringing human history to its final consummation, to its final victory of the kingdom of God there in chapter 19, the word of God on the white horse. Throughout the book you see Jesus in victory, Jesus in power, facing down the powers of darkness that grip this world and bringing everything into his sovereign purpose. It's a glorious book. And in it he has the name that's above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. The full meaning of the name of Jesus will one day be revealed to all creation. It will be recognized, feared, honored, and respected with only one legitimate response. When Jesus is finally revealed and everybody's raised from the dead and everybody's before him and principalities are before him, powers are before him, everyone will be bowing the knee. Every creature will be bowing the knee because they will finally see what many have despised, the exalted Christ of God and that he got there legitimately. And then he did what no other creature in existence could do. He saved a human race from sin and death. Every knee will bow. Everyone who has mocked God will be there and will regret their mockery eternally. Everyone who's repented and believed will be there. And they will with joy and gladness bow the knee. Every king will be there. Every important person will be there. Every rich person, every poor person. They're all named there in Revelation chapter 20 and 21. Everyone will be bowing the knee because everyone will finally, ultimately see who Jesus is. And Paul becomes very comprehensive again as he did in Ephesians 1. Whatever realm will exist, may exist, is thought to exist, in, any, in every dimension that there is or can be or thought to be, those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, Philippians 2, 9 through 11, they're all going to bow, they're all going to see, and they're all going to bow. And every tongue is going to confess, all will consciously acknowledge, all will exclaim, all will confess. 
I mean, sometimes you're just, you're just worshiping the Lord, you're singing a song with someone who can actually sing, and it just comes out. You're just confessing the Lord. It's just God is so awesome. Part of the world would be doing that. Part of the rest of the world would be going wailing and beating on their chest. What was I thinking? What was I doing? Why did I despise this? But everyone's going to confess. Everyone's going to acknowledge. Everyone's going to recognize. Some to everlasting glory and blessing and some to everlasting shame and contempt. But every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So when we say Lord Jesus, what's contained in that term Lord? All that we've been looking at. The exaltation of Christ. And it's going to be to the glory of God the Father. As always, the will of the Father and the honor of the Father are ultimate. Jesus obeyed his Father unto death. Some people get confused and they think that, well, there's subordination in the Trinity, and well, that means that the Son isn't as much God as the Father, and that's not so. The Son, willingly and gladly, from all eternity, has submitted himself to the Father. And the Father has, from all eternity, willingly and gladly loved the Son. And the Holy Spirit, from all eternity, has been sort of representing them both, I guess. I don't know. He proceeds from the Father. There's all the theological stuff you can get into. But they have all been the eternal God. They are all as much God as any of them. They all share in the same divinity. But they do have personal subordination. So this is not subordination of essence. This is subordination of person. You see, the the Arian heretics, Jehovah's Witnesses, and all the folks that are in that category talk about the subordination of essence. Well, the Son is not as much God as the Father. Well, that's not true. It's just the Son always obeys the Father, and the Father always loves the Son. The Father has given everything into the Son's hands, and Jesus said, thank you, now I'm going to give it all back, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Everything will be to the glory of God, the Father. So one of these days, we're all going to be standing before God. Do you think of that day very often? All of you here, me included, all of us here, We will all one day stand before God and we will see the glory of Christ. That's going to happen. We will see that he's at the right hand of the Father. We will see his glory and honor. We will see what his death accomplished. We will see how blessed that is. But are you going to be there with an expectation that you were going to be with that God, that Father, that Jesus, that Son for eternity with joy and blessing? Or is your expectation not? What do you desire? Everything will be to the glory of God the Father. All will confess, all will see, all will know. You can be on the right side of what they call it, what the right side of history. You can be on the right side of the day of judgment. All you have to do is turn to God and say, Lord, I'm a mess. I don't know up from down. I don't know right from left. I don't know truth from error. 
just a sinner. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Will you save me? I will let go of everything in my life. Anything you want me to let go of, I will. And I will follow you all my days. Lord, just show me your glory. Show me who you are. Show me Jesus. Fix all the broken stuff in my life and heart. Forgive all my sins. So is the exaltation of Christ to the right hand of God central to Christianity, to the gospel, to the kingdom of God? Or is it peripheral? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you. And Lord, we just, we just in our hearts, Lord, we want to just bow before you and just acknowledge that you're the great God who made heaven and earth that you give to all of us life and breath and all things. You give existence and reality to this entire universe and to every conscious being in it. You are the great creator. You are the author. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge that you are at the right hand of God and you didn't get there by political machinations. You didn't get there by manipulating things. You got there because you were obedient unto death for our sins. And we thank you for it. Lord, we read your word and it's just as true that you died and rose as that you, you ascended and you went into heaven and you went to the right hand of the Father and that all these things, somehow our life is bound up in that. We've died with you to sin. We've risen with you to newness of life. And we've been seated with you in the heavenly places. We confess we're not sure how to talk about that or express that or articulate it, but we know how to experience it. So Lord, just pray that the, the glory of those things, the power of those things, the blessedness of those things would be in our lives. Would be in our lives in the very practical matters of life. Lord, you... You dwelt in a, in a land of people, of farmers, uh, of men and women, of boys and girls, of dogs and cats. You weren't a philosopher. You weren't up on a mountain philosophizing. You did go up on a mountain and tell people what the kingdom of God is all about, but it was what? It was all about having good character, living righteously, praying, giving alms, putting our hope in God, not seeking things in this world, but things in the world to come reconciling with people, doing what you say to do. So Lord, just uh, pray that uh, this loftiness that you're exalted at the right hand of God would grip us, but it will always filter down into our everyday life and all our relationships. And just pray, Lord, you keep this body of believers, keep us in your love, in true humility, uh, true, uh, Lord, meekness, and uh, be with us by your Holy Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.